Hello, and welcome to Aerial Evolution. My guest today is Susan Murphy. Susan studied ballet as a child and went on to earn a master's in modern dance from Mills College in Oakland, California, and certified movement analysis through the Laban Institute for Movement Studies in New York City. While a student at Mills, she met Terry Sengraff and began studying low-to-the-floor dance trapeze. In 1983, she moved to New York, where she continued developing trapeze's fitness, self-expression, and performance art performing at Lincoln Center, as well as the Skirball Center of the Performing Arts. She taught modern dance at the University of Georgia from 99 to 2002. Then, Susan and her husband Don Carson envisioned and built Canopy Studios, a community aerial arts center in Athens, Georgia. Susan served as executive director of Canopy until she moved to the coast of Georgia in 2009. There, she and Don have built a state-of-the-art aerial dance studio by the marsh, where she is now holding again retreats. I would like to note that Aerial Evolution is funded through the kind support of you, the listeners. So if you are a fan and can afford a donation, it is very much appreciated and 100% goes to keeping this going. There is a PayPal donation button on the website, www.aerialevolutionpod.com. Thank you. With that, let's get started. Well, hello, Susan. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So as a child, like I said in the intro, you studied ballet and then went on to earn a master's in modern dance in California. You were then lured away into the world of aerial when you studied with Terry Sengraff, the creator of aerial dance in the U.S. How did you find Terry and aerial? So I was taking regular modern dance and ballet and, you know, dance improvisation classes at Mills. And I had a good friend who said, there's this woman in Berkeley doing really interesting form of dance movement that I think you would enjoy or you would like to know about or you'd like to try out because she knew I was a tomboy and I was very you know out of doors athletic I went to Berkeley I took a class and I was hooked it was really more my style and I had a greater affinity for working with the trapeze which is more like working with equipment like jungle gyms or trees or then ballet which was less comfortable for me Mm. and less familiar to me. I took it as a child, but only with tap. It was just kind of one of the things I took. I didn't study it seriously. Oh, okay. And I really uh, started really loving dance when I studied with a woman, Leslie Morris at Emory University, who was doing community classes in modern dance. And she was using different apparatus and different kind of props Mm. that I found very comfortable to to work with, to have something to relate to and hold on to and climb, or like she would put us in a big sack, all of us. This was pretty innovative back in, you know, the early 70s. So uh, we'd have to climb in a hole in a sack and then make shapes in the sack. And then she would have us climbing on the side of a building on uh, beautiful sculptures that had handholds you could hold on to and create a dance on the side of a building at Emory with these sculptural shapes. So when I went to Terry's class, it was in a beautiful studio. It was very relaxing. You'd go in there and you'd have time with music to just center yourself, get into your own movement. She was a psychologist as well Mm -hmm. as a, you know, gymnast. So she was really combining her work in psychology and interrelational therapy uh, with her background, like me, in Florida, where she was swinging off tire swings and landing in the rivers and climbing trees. So this Uh, trapeze was actually 
a lot like a tire swing in that it had one point going up to the attachment and uh, you could be low to the floor. You could swing out over the floor and let go and land almost like you would be doing if you were swinging out of over from a tree and landing in the river. Right. So it was very organic and her way of teaching was extremely exploratory, personal, intimate, low pressure, humorous. And we worked a lot in partners so that we were giving feedback to each other. She had very little technique. (laughs) And it was not until I started getting connected with the circus people that I actually amped up my technique. Interesting. I just want to go back to the sack that you were talking about. Really? Yeah. I'm just curious, is that like a hammock or is that something totally No, this was on the floor. Oh, okay. Imagine a big stretchy piece of fabric Mm. that, you know, you had a slit in and you could climb inside. It was all sewn together except for a slit. And we would climb in it, all of us, and then we'd press our bodies against the sides of it, like six of us would be inside this sack. I see. And we were creating shapes and moving it on the floor. It was not aerial at all, but it was very much about creating shapes and connecting with each other. And uh-huh. um, it was actually then you could say it was like an aerial hammock in that you you were in a, in a you're right. I just hadn't thought about it as being <laughs> up and it wasn't up in the air. And there was only, there were six of us, you know, inside this. But, but when you put the hammock around you mm-hmm. and press your body against it, yeah, it's kind of a sack in the air. Yeah, that's sort of cocoon yeah, 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 yeah. Pe- You're right, Rowan. I had, I just. <laughs> I just hadn't put it together with that. Interesting. So as you were saying, Terry didn't have any technique. It was this low bar thing. So it's quite different from what it is today when you talk about aerial dance. Absolutely. So what did you learn from her about why she created it and what it was at the time? She just loved improvisation. And she did something called A Month of Sundays, where she performed either by herself or invited guests every Sunday for a year pretty demanding and pretty intense commitment. Mm. And she just every Sunday wanted to make something different. Mm -hmm. And sometimes she would use prop. Well, she just kind of used this as a prop one Sunday and had several of these hanging low to the floor with a wooden bar, skinny polyester ropes. And it just took off. People loved playing with it. And it was just, you know, mostly people improvising on it, hanging, climbing, making shapes, pulling, pushing, So, and also exploring what was possible Mm. with a bar and two ropes going up to a single point low to the floor. Mm -hmm. But it was very little technique, like probably knee hang, hip hang, catcher's hang, not much else. Nothing had names. Right. So, yeah. And then you said that you started learning technique when you met up with circus people. Yes. So how did that come about? We moved to California, Don, my husband and I, in 1990. And we moved to Bolinas, California, which is a little seaside town north of San Francisco. And I was still going over to Berkeley and studying with Terry because mm. I'd been away for several years. You know, I'd moved to New York and met Don, and then we moved back to California. So I... I had several years where I was exploring it on my own. But when I got back, you know, wanted to study with Terry again. And she was still doing a lot of the same things she was doing when I first started studying with her in 78. 
<laughs> you know, not really developing that much technique. So I went to the San Francisco School of Surface Arts, and there I met Serenity and Elsie Smith. And I took private lessons from Serenity on the circus trapeze, which is a very different creature than the low of the floor dance trapeze. So Serenity started teaching me actual technique on the circus trapeze. And I started doing different kind of pieces than just improvisation. I started creating choreography with her help on the circus trapeze. Can you explain the difference for anyone who doesn't know the dance trapeze that you learned on with the circus trapeze, like how they're different? Well, just the construction is very different. The circus trapeze has a, obviously a steel bar and it has has uh, skinny elbows and it has nylon polyester ropes that go up to two points. So it's more like a swing. This was how it was then. Now everything has changed and there's so much invented equipment. You know, it's amazing. So it would be high up, like in a circus. You would have to either, you could probably jump up to it. The dance trapeze was a wooden bar, still the skinny ropes. Mm-hmm but close to the floor. Well, my husband started making them and made the ropes thicker, but they were still wooden bars. So the carbon fiber did not come till much, much later. So the skinny ropes, you couldn't climb on them at all. Is that correct? Uh, people climb on them. It's just not very comfortable. I, see. I mean, the ropes I use now with the dance trapeze are thick cotton ropes. Mm-hmm. And Don splices them into the carbon fiber bar. Mm. We started using carbon fiber bars instead of the wooden bars because the wooden bars were breaking. I was going to ask you because your husband, Don, is known for his carbon fiber bars. Yes. Which replaced the wooden ones. And so like, how did that transition come about? When we built Canopy and we were having kind of industrial classes, there was a lot more wear and tear on the trapezes. And you can't tell with the wooden bar when it's getting dry and brittle from looking at it. And we had two trapezes break. No one was hurt badly. I mean, there was a little little hurt, but um, not serious. But at that point, it became a definite insurance issue and a safety issue. Don started investigating other possibilities for how to make a safe but still lightweight trapeze with the thick ropes because mm-hmm. we didn't want the thin, skinny ropes and the big elbows, the big kind of fluffy elbows, which is makes it a more forgiving and a more user-friendly and beginners really enjoy working on it as opposed to the circus trapeze, uh, which is a, a little more rigorous and hard on the body. So um, so once we developed that, the wooden bars went out. And I don't think anybody uses wooden bars anymore, you know. And, and the people are using, of course, a lot more invented equipment. And then the fabrics came in, the silks came in, and then that took it into a whole nother arena of aerial dance and performances with all kind of different equipment. I performed on a triple trapeze. I performed on bungees. I performed on straps. I performed on a aerial net. So, you know, there are, and I performed in the dark with lights all over my body. Oh, wow. So people are being very inventive now. And I performed on something called a tetra, which is a, a triangle parallel to the floor triangle with ropes going up from each corner. So it's like a tetrahedron. Uh-huh. Interesting. Is there a video of that anywhere? 
Um, yes, there is a video. I, I can send you a video, Rowan. Yeah, I'd love to see it. Of a group piece with three people on five tetras. That was at Canopy. Nice. And now when I have performances here at the Marsh Studio and Canopy people come here, whoever gets here first knows that they have to do a piece with me on the Tetra, an improvisation that we create like the day before the community performance. Hmm. Whoever gets here first, we climb on the Tetra and we create some kind of piece all together. (laughs) Nice. That's great. You've talked a little bit about this already, but I'm curious how your work and your career has evolved over the years. Um, I guess I was... uh, became more of where I always was with Terry, interested, but more engaged and inspired and invested in creating pieces that had content, personal meaning, more gestural uh, moments in them. And of course, now I'm doing only spoken word pieces on the trapeze. Mm-hmm. So I've combined my love of poetry. I write the poetry I perform with. My love of poetry, my love of gesture and uh, a kind of a quality of expression that's very intimate and personal and being up on the trapeze. But my last piece I did, I performed at Canopy in the fall. I performed this piece called um, I'm in My Last Trimester. And um, that was a spoken word piece I performed outdoors on a rig with Canopy as a benefit for Canopy. It's a very difficult combination, speaking and performing on a apparatus where you're can quite easily get out of breath. No, it's not that. It's not. It's hard not that hard. No, no. I have a head. I have a headphone, so I don't have to project, and that's one thing. I really wanted not to have to be shouting out my words. Mm-hmm. The head mic allows me to speak more quietly and have more tenderness as well as be heard. And the words are so important. I wanted every word to be heard. Mm-hmm. So I find it easier to perform at this point with a spoken word because it helps me get in touch with my feelings. Interesting. To speak the words and then be animated by the words with my movement and gestures. That's fascinating. You have to love poetry. You have to love, you have to feel comfortable speaking, which I do. Mm. Uh, You have to want to communicate a definite idea, not just, you know, like let the audience take what they will, which you do when you have more of a silent piece. They take what they do from it by your gestures and by your movement. But with a spoken word, you're actually telling a story. So you're very um, you're very clear about what you want the content to be. And you're clear about how you want the audience to hear what your story is and not just have one going in their own mind about what they think it might be. Yeah, but there's still opportunity for interpretation. Yes, absolutely. 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 That's the beauty of poetry. Right. I was just going to add that on, that there is definitely people who hear a poem and they think they, they interpret it differently. Mm-hmm. Have I sent you my po- the two poems that I've done pieces to? You sent me the one that you did the Governor's Award. Okay, you saw that one. That was mm-hmm. my last one. I yeah. also did one I love, maybe even more, giving tribute to my grandmother and my great-grandmother. Mm. That I love that piece. 
a lot. I love the piece because I really wanted to give them tribute. They were two amazing women, pioneers in their own way, but not recognized, really. My great-grandmother was more. She was one of the first women lawyers in Georgia and one of the first civil rights lawyers in the South. Uh, and my grandmother was a working woman all her life where people were not working back in the uh, 30s. So I, I love that piece. And I creating that piece and then the next one, I realized I wanted to say something that I could only say through my poetry and on the trapeze and using Laban movement analysis. Speaking of Laban, what is it and how did it come about? When I was in New York, living in New York, before I met my husband, I was a massage therapist doing trapeze, though. A friend of mine said, I think you should explore broadening your trapeze work through Laban. So I went and I, you know, investigated it. And I found that it was exactly what I needed to go kind of to the next level in expressing myself. Here's Levon. I'll just read it. From his observations, Levon came to understand that movement may be consciously or unconsciously expressed. In either case, whether it's consciously expressed or unconsciously expressed, it can be analyzed into the motion factors of flow, space, weight, and time. If it is a person's inner attitude toward these components of movement that Laban called efforts. Mm. Effort is the attitude toward the exertion of effort in flow, space, weight, time. His analysis of effort embraced the functional everyday task, how people use uh, flow, space, weight, and time in everyday task, and the expressive communication and performance. So it was dual focus for him. Because effort analysis addresses both function, the way we work with equipment. It's like the way you would work with, say, a drill or a saw or a, making a cake or something where you're using different efforts to make your work more efficient or more expressive. He analyzed both function, which is how we address the trapeze as a tool, and expressive, the intention to find authenticity in our performance. So I just love the way he broke down the movement factors of flow, space, weight, and time, and how then once you became aware that you could reach for a trapeze with a different intention instead of just grabbing it right, or reach for a rope or reach for a fabric, instead of just grabbing it, you could use, you know, a one effort or a combination of efforts to actually make your approach much more layered and much more expressive and intentional. So interesting. What's his background? Is it dance? Or? He's from Eastern European. His mother was an artist. His father was a military person. So he actually moved around a lot with his father being in the military. So he had the right brain and the left brain going with his mother being an artist, his father being a military person. And he just observed cultures uh -huh. and activities and people's professions. He observed people in therapy. He observed people who are schizophrenic. He observed folk dances. He observed military parades. He observed people doing factory work. He observed people doing all kind of artistic uh, endeavors. And he cataloged just by watching people from all cultures and in all activities, performance and functional, mm -hmm. he cataloged efforts in uh, flow, space, weight, and time. And there was a woman in this country doing the same thing with babies, hmm. analyzing their flow patterns and then 
you know, coming to the same kind of conclusions he had in a different way. Really? With babies? With babies, yeah. Huh. That's fascinating. Stay tuned for more with my conversation with Susan Murphy after the short break. Since you began doing Ariel in the 70s until now, you know, it has changed dramatically. What are you most excited about? I can't say what I'm most excited about. I performed last year as part of the Circus Spectacular mm. at um, in Brattleboro, Vermont. It was New England's in for Circus Arts. They did a virtual mm-hmm. performance this year with Serenity and Nelsie. So um, I performed with them and I was just just very impressed and very touched by the variety of circus arts and performance arts and expressive arts, all using some kind of equipment, whether it be balls or the floor or juggling or, you know, equipment. Um, I think people are really finding their voice, their physical and emotional voice by having this whole art form blow up where there's just no limits, only your imagination of how you can use equipment of all kind of invented and traditional to be an expressive partner for what you want to say. Why do you think it has become so popular? People need to people need to express themselves so badly. And this this because you have an apparatus for a partner gives it such another dimension. Mm. You know, it's so tactile, so tangible, so um, comforting to me to have a partner like when I would climb trees, you know, just that feeling of safety and security and connection with something other than just the floor. Mm. I think people really do love having not only a human partner, but a partner that they can explore with, you know, as a apparatus partner. And it's very athletic. I think people really enjoy that. You know, there's fitness classes around it. And uh, it's, you know, it's branched out. And I mean, the pole dancing has gotten so big. And people, I mean, people of all sizes and abilities and interest can find a piece of apparatus that's right for them. Some people, like I have stayed loyal to the low to the floor dance trapeze, except I've had small affairs with um, (laughs) bungee and straps and the aerial net and, you know, but I've stayed really, I'm pretty monogamous to the low to the floor (laughs) dance trapeze. Oh, I love that. Through the years. And I think a lot of people find their partner Mm-hmm. their aerial partner, and they just want to keep deepening their relationship to their work and them, their own inner feelings through that relationship. I love you put it that way because I, I do hoop. And, uh, That's huge. Lyra. Is that what you're talking about, Lyra? Yeah, Lyra. Oh, yeah, Lyra. When I, I started doing rope before the pandemic, and I always yeah. felt like I was cheating on Right, on the- <laughs> right, right. No, Lyra, so beautiful. So beautiful. And I coach a lot of people with Lyra because really I coach people that I have no idea how the technique Mm. of their apparatus, how to, how to engage myself physically in the technique, but I can look at them and tell what they're trying to express through that relationship with their aerial apparatus. Mm. So I don't need to know the technique. I mean, I know enough and I can translate enough from trapeze Mm-hmm. To just about anything, but I I see I see where there's a breakdown in intention 
and expression. Interesting, yeah. I think because I've been doing this for so many years, I feel when there's a disconnect. Right. When people are, are wanting, and now a lot of people do want to have, they have a message. Yeah. They really don't want to just go out there and do one trick after another. They really have a desire to express an inner feeling or, you know, social consciousness or a family love for somebody or um, a, a trauma in their life. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's such a need to express and, and not to have it be dance therapy. That's that's the real important part. You have to you have to refine it so it's universal and not so not caught so much in yourself mm. that you feel like it's it's too raw. Or again, people can do that too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, they can do that too. At the same time, it's not my aesthetic to have it be that raw. I just want to kind of take that rawness and make it so it's more universal. But I've coached people that did not want to do that. Sure. And I feel very honored that they trusted me enough to share that with me and that my own aesthetic does not get in the way of that, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I've talked to a bunch of people for this podcast, and I think the consensus these days is very much more about the message and having something to say as opposed to concern about the technique. Right, right. And that's why I go to NECA every year. Of course, I didn't go this year. And uh, Serenity and I are going to do a um, virtual class at some mm. point, I think. She's invited me to. We just have to figure out when. Co-teach together vir- on nice. a virtual class. But you, but for the last, I don't know, 10 years, I've gone to NECA and coached people. Uh, and each year, I see more and more that. And that's why they bring me back there, too, because people really want to express through gesture, through stillness through words, through the animation of their own presence, something that means a lot to them. Yeah. You know, I've talked to people of a variety of ages, and one thing that is on their minds often is the end of their careers and a bit of anxiety about it, like what happens when they can't do it anymore. And you are a testament that it doesn't have to end at a certain age, which is beautiful. Not so far. I'm 73. But the pandemic has certainly invited me to question how much, what kind of work I want to continue doing and how many retreats I want to have here, how many performances I want to have here. I mean, Don is fixing up this wonderful camper that, you know, I haven't been able, we haven't been able to travel as much as I think would be fun and interesting for us because I've had such a regular schedule here of classes, of performances, of retreats. But now we have this camper and we want to travel, you know, all over the country. So I'm definitely going to be doing less, I think. And I just want to make sure it's what I really want to do. And I would love to do another piece. If I find that inspiration and need to express, I don't know when the pandemic is over. I'm not, um, except for wanting to do it with Serenity, I haven't even thought about doing any classes through Zoom. It hasn't been anything I've been interested in. I did one last summer and it was okay, but it was not, I did not initiate. It was with Carolyn Kalush's summer program at, in Charlotte. So um, we'll see. Yeah, but it's beautiful that kind of when it feels right is, is really the message yeah. that I think you bring. Yeah, I'm not concerned about that at all. It'll, I mean, and now my studio is Don's shop. So there's no way I can even, you know, it's a huge, he's had a, he has a huge shop in there now. 
Mm. that he's taken up the whole studio with putting in um, solar panels for our van. Sounds fun. Yeah. So I, I will see when the, my studio is, when I can reclaim my studio, I'll see what I feel like doing. Right. Well, that sounds like a fun problem to have. Yes, absolutely. Awesome. Well, is there anything that you would like to add that we haven't addressed? No, not really. I don't think so. You've been a great interviewer. Well, thank you. I mean, I've taught many years and I've taught so many people and I felt privileged to have that opportunity of students come back to me years later and reconnect with me, which is a joy. I was just awarded this year um, the Governor's of Georgia's Individual Award in the Arts and Humanities. So that's quite a, a tribute to the performances I've been doing. Absolutely. It feels like a long career of a lot of teaching and a lot of performances. And um, I'll just have to see where it goes next. Well, I look forward to watching and seeing what you do. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Aerial Evolution. And thank you, Susan, for coming on. It was a pleasure to talk to you. As always, I would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, come and find Aerial Evolution on the website, Instagram, or Facebook. All are at Aerial Evolution Pod. And these links will be in the show notes. Stay tuned for future episodes with other amazing aerialists releasing every two weeks. Next time, I'll be speaking with Aaron Ball, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. 